All right. We're gonna do it the scan away. I'm gonna suck your brain dry. And we're back. Yes, with the Mars Magazine podcast. This is Dario Strange here with Vic Song. And this week, we're going to do a little something different. Uh, usually, we start out with a little news segment and maybe talk about some of the stuff we've experienced. But we decided to devote this episode completely to Star Trek. That is the 50th anniversary of Star Trek. Space, the final frontier. These are the voyages of the starship Enterprise. Its five-year mission to explore strange new worlds, to seek out new life and new civilizations, to boldly go where no man has gone before. Are you are you a Trekkie, Victoria? I am not a big Trekkie. If you were to ask me, I think we talked about this before uh, in our May the 4th episode, but I am more of a Star Wars fan. But that being said, I do enjoy a piping hot cup of Earl Grey. Earl Grey hot. <laughs> okay, that, yeah, that for Trekkies out there, that is the drink of choice of Jean-Luc Picard, the uh, captain of, what is that, Star Trek The Next Generation. Uh, he's my favorite captain. It's, it's really close between him and James T. Kirk, the original captain. Um, and I know purists out there will say he's not the original. There was a guy in the pilot. I'm, well, for me, James T. Kirk is the original. Um, so for, for anyone who doesn't know, they're not aware of the history of Star Trek. It first aired on September 8th, 1966. And that's um, so the 50th anniversary is going to be coming this uh, September this mm -hmm. year. And the reason why we're talking about it now is because there are just so many events that are going on right now commemorating the 50th anniversary. That, you know, it's kind of best to kind of talk about it now to kind of get you aware of all this stuff. If you're into that, if you're a Trekkie and if you're a Star Wars person and you hate the Trek, you can sign off now. Bye. No, <laughs> um, no, I just, I mean, I'm, I'm kind of, I take it personal because I, you know, I love Star Trek. I mean, I love Star Wars, but I'm a Trekkie and I, I just kind of, I don't like when there's this kind of like, I don't think there's any comparison just because the word star mm. is in both, you know, well, names. I feel like Star Trek is way more pure hard sci-fi, whereas Star Wars has this fantasy element to it. Exactly. And, and that's fine. I, I, I enjoy the fantasy element in Star Wars, but I really, I really enjoy Star Trek too because it's just a different feel and a different take on what sci-fi is. So haters gonna hate, and you can just go hate elsewhere. Yeah, and so it was. Um, the 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 first episode was 1966, and it wasn't um, incredibly popular when it first aired because it only ran a few years. It ended on September 2nd, 1969. So it, it ended, the original series ended before most people listening were even born. It had a total of 79 episodes, the first series. And then later it was rebooted to Star Trek The Next Generation in the 80s. And, you know, it's it's interesting because that reboot was really good. It wasn't, um, you know, reboots are, are, are tricky. And Star mm -hmm. Trek The Next Generation, I think it really carved out its own niche within the Star Trek universe. And it really... It made a respectable showing, but then you had, you know, subsequent series, uh, Star Trek Voyager, uh, Star Trek Enterprise, uh, Star Trek Deep Space Nine, 
all all three TV series have their fans, have their detractors. Some people like uh, Voyager because it had the first female captain, you know, Captain Janeway. Uh, some people like Deep Space Nine because it had uh, the first black, you know, captain. Uh, although Black Cap didn't have a ship, Black mm-hmm. Captain had a, uh, you know, an outpost. You know, I'm just saying, what's, what's up with that? No, uh, <laughs> oh, Black Man, Black Man can't wow. get a spaceship. No, uh, um, no, uh, Cisco was a uh, Captain. Cisco was the Black uh, Captain on the uh, on Deep Space Nine. So I mean, yeah, and, and Enterprise. I don't know. I wasn't really a fan of Enterprise. I th- I thought it was well done. The production value was kind of in line with previous, you know, st- you know at least you know with Star Trek next generation level production value. But I, I wasn't really a fan. C- captain Archer was the name of the captain um, of that ship. I guess you would say it's kind of like they were trying to take viewers all the way back before Captain Kirk. So this was kind of Captain Archer was showing how Starfleet was actually entering the universe and meeting, you know, mm. other species for the first time. And of course we have the movies, you know, uh, with Leonard Nimoy and, and uh, William Shatner, and then the other movies, you know, more recently. Um, yes, yeah, so I, I mean, it, it's it's a legit franchise. It has its own universe. Uh, there are phrases that have seeped into pop culture, live long and prosper. Just like, you know, May the Force Be With You is Star Wars. Live long and prosper is uh, Star Trek. Oh, is that? And also, isn't it Phaser set? To Phaser stun? set to stun. Yeah, there are just a lot of tropes from the Star Trek universe. You know, uh, transporter deck, uh, the hollow deck. People are always referencing. Oh, you know, when are we going to have a hollow deck? Well, that's a, a Star Trek uh, idea. You know, there's just a lot of things from the Star Trek universe that have seeped into popular culture. You know, so now celebrating the 50th anniversary of the franchise, I think, is warranted. And we just kind of wanted to go down a list of some of the things that are going on. But before we get into that, just I want to read what it says, just in case I didn't give maybe a a robust enough explanation. Just the computerhistory.org. This is their description of the original series. Star Trek, the science fiction television series, was created by Gene Roddenberry. Set in the 23rd century, the original Star Trek follows the adventures of Starship of the Starship Enterprise and its crew, led by Captain James T. Kirk, played by William Shatner, and his first officer, Mr. Spock, Leonard Nimoy. Mr. Spock is a Vulcan, as many of you may already know, uh, known for his logic, uh, his you know lack of emotion. Although the the, mo- the emotions simmer underneath, but he keeps them in check. Star Trek was not an immediate hit and was initially broadcast for only three seasons. Uh, many of the technologies shown in the series, including the tricorder and personal communicator, influenced the generation of technologists working in portable communications and, commun- and computing. And uh, and so, yeah, so that's kind of like a synopsis from computerhistory.org. And, yeah, it, it's it's good they note that because, you know, when you think of a flip phone, right, even now we think of a mm-hmm. flip phone as kind of this archaic piece of technology but that, for all intents and purposes, was the Star Trek communicator that uh, Captain Kirk. Yeah. Well, I'm curious before we go too far. Are you how conversant are you mm-hmm. with the original series? I am not very conversant with the original series. I think I saw a couple episodes when I was a kid just on the sci fi channel. But it was like the age before BitTorrent and all that sort of thing. So I was just whenever it was on, 
I would sometimes. Now, are you just not someone who watches like really old science fiction or was there something that put you off? Was the, was the, were the special effects just too cheesy? Like what, why, why haven't you seen more? Uh, now as an adult, sometimes looking back when the special effects aren't that great, it can be a little too cheesy. Like I have a hard time with classic Doctor Who for Please don't, don't you dare. Sacrilege. (laughs) How dare you mention yeah. Doctor Who in the same breath of... See, now we have a problem now because now I've been exposed as a Doctor Who hater. I'm not a Doctor Who hater, but I'm sorry. You, you cannot compare the Who to the Trek. <laughs> Please continue. I'm sorry. Any Who. Sacrilege. Um, <laughs> uh, so it, it was just a little hard as an adult going back to that part, but I have enjoyed like a lot of episodes of the next generation that wasn't so bad but i don't know there's something about william shatner and his like kirk chops like the his way pulses his like, way of speaking in a dramatic situation and you know it kind of translates in the way that he fights, yeah like, just totally certain certain things where he'd look at it he's like it's fighting time <laughs> you know my favorite J- james c kirk move is when he balls his fists up like together and then like mm-hmm. hits you in the chest, like with the double <laughs> fist. Like that's just, I don't know. Like when you have know, you ever um, seen that in I real was, life? Was, like wh- where did they get that move? Like but I was actually watching a couple of clips of the old original because I knew we were going to be talking about this. And it was just like James T. Kirk's like top 10 best moves, <laughs> like fighting moves or something. And it's, he's talking to like a hot alien right. chick. And he's like, you know, I'm showing you love and introducing these concepts to you. And I think they have to escape or something. And he just like punches her in the face. <laughs> like, not super hard, but that's how it was in the sixties, man, now, you know. And now and now lovely alien chick. I got to hey, go. Let's not forget, this is essentially the era where this is still the era of, you know, where, where Sinatra and his ilk are still basically hanging around, you know, in Vegas and, you know, and on, you know, in, in films, you know, cracking dames across the face with, a, with a hard <laughs> one, two or whatever. So yeah, there's some sexist stuff going on in Star Trek to be sure. But I mean, what, I mean, the thing about Star Trek, you know, to its credit, the, the positive side, is that it's very much known for being a like one of the few places you know on broadcast TV that was diverse. It, you know, it showed diverse mm. races, uh, people from diverse. They had uh, an, a person who was you know well, they weren't actually from these places, but in the world of Star Trek, the bridge crew had someone from Russia, someone from Japan, someone from Africa. I know, I know those three were represented and then other alien races. Oh, uh, someone from, I can't remember if, um, the doctor was, uh, I'm sorry, if the engineer, Scotty, was, uh, Scottish or Irish. So I apologize to. I think he's Scottish. Okay. Yeah. So. Hence. Well, I don't know. I don't know. I mean. Maybe. I don't, don't want to assume, but yeah. So, yeah. So, so it was really cool because it was kind of like this international crew. And even though, you know, I think, uh, Captain Kirk was supposed to be American, you know, William Shatner is actually Canadian. So, um, I just forgot to <laughs> note that, you know, Canadian Canuck. Um, and Jean-Luc Picard, uh, the next captain is, uh, I think he's actually French in the, in the world of, like in the real world, he's he's British, but in the world of Star Trek, I believe he's actually French. I would love to hear Patrick Stewart's actually like a French accent on his 
very disappointing. Have you seen a ton of episodes from The Next Generation with Patrick Stewart? I've seen maybe a, a season of, of just here and there throughout the years of when it was just rerun on TV. And he would always, what I remember from him is T, okay, or. <laughs> right, make it so. Yes, yes. Like Engage when it's time to like Engage. move the ship. And- also data. <laughs> oh yeah, data, data. Um Brent Spiner. Yeah. Uh, you know, it had Whoopi Goldberg somehow was thrust in there. Q from the Q continuum, which I thought that was an, an mm-hmm. amazing concept. Uh like an all-powerful being from a race of all-powerful beings who is just bored and is thus playful and sets up all mm-hmm. these kind of tricks and puzzles for these humans. And then the Borg. The Borg to me is kind of like I feel like it's it might be one of the greatest contributions Star Trek The Next Generation has made, not just to sci-fi, but to popular culture, because it kind of gives us our, I think, our first real visual representation of what uh, cybernetic uh, beings mm-hmm. really truly linked and in a hive mind, because you have to imagine if we have a bunch of people who are cyborgs and you know, they have implants and they have wireless communication, you know, between each other. You know, I imagine, you know, per- perhaps not as dramatic and as sinister as the Borg, but there, there are some looks that, you know, would probably hearken, you know, toward the Borg if, if this was a real thing. Well, it's like inventing the cloud before the cloud was an actual thing. Okay, I guess that, that sounds like marketing speak. Have you been, did Microsoft visit you in the last week? <laughs> Oh yeah, no. I have I have Satya Nadella on my on my uh, speed dial. Yeah, yeah. So yeah, so you have the Borg. Is there anything that stands out for you about the next generation? Whether it's a favorite character, a favorite technology, like what I liked about the start uh, the generation is when they would go explore. And in so doing, kind of bring up questions about the world that we live in now, like relating ethical questions sometimes about exploration and how we use science and how we treat other people. Like for me, I think that's one of the coolest things about Star Trek and, you know, they talk about issues that we currently deal with in a way that seems fantastical or like in an adventure. And it's kind of in a way that Star uh, Star Wars doesn't do. Sorry for, for bringing up that franchise again, but Star Wars is just really kind of a fantasy world. And there's not a whole lot of political or like cultural parallels right uh, uh, audience like you can send your letters to vic song at uh no <laughs> no i no, i hear you that's the thing that i really love about star trek too it's very much um i i feel like it's the the science fiction is almost just there as a framing device to kind of take you out of your real context i mean basically it does it's a perfect mm-hmm. science fiction show because it's really just a framing device to talk about real contemporary issues of race, politics, uh, science, ethics. It's it's almost every. I mean, every once in a while, you'll get a Star, a Star Trek episode that's just about, oh, the Romulans versus, you know, the Federation. And, you know, we're just fighting it out or there's just some battle. But that that's the rare one. It's almost always there's some moral, you know, issue at yeah, play. It's. It's like a really cerebral show, and that's what I like about it. Um, you know, I do think that Star Wars, as much as I love it, is a little bit like eating candy because you just have lightsabers, and you're like, oh, my God, lightsabers, that's super cool. Wow, awesome. But I think Star Trek does make you think a lot more, and I think that's what I like most about it. And, you know, on that note, I have to bring up 
one of the greatest episodes from the original series uh, called Let That Be Your Last Battlefield. It's basically a story. I mean, it's I mean, if you look at it from a science fiction point of view, it's fascinating. If you don't respect science fiction, maybe you'll think it's silly. I don't know. But it's basically the the Starship Enterprise. This, this is just from memory. The Starship Enterprise encounters a planet in which on which two sides of the planet they they have faces that are black and white. Like like literally right down the middle. Half of their face is like shocking paper white, the other half of their face mm-hmm. is like stark, stark black. And these two people, these two different kinds of people live on two different sides of the planet and they're at war with each other and the starship enterprise comes upon these two guys or two two of the people from both sides of the planet and i can't remember how they got on the ship but basically the episode is like this back and forth battle between these two aliens with half black half white faces i I mean I can watch this episode over and over again. Again, the the title is Let That Be Your Last Battlefield. Let That Be Your Last Battlefield. I just think it's like, I mean, it's clearly they were talking about race. You know, they were talking Mm -hmm. about this notion of race as this artificial construct that separates us. Because when you, in the episode, when you look at these two aliens with the black, white faces, they look exactly the same. But to each other yeah. in the, in the episode, it's so fascinating. The acting on Star Trek is often so good and it's so fascinating because in the episode, the actors are just like, just they are just like, no, there's no way I look like that guy. Are you crazy? You know, just and then, you know, to anyone looking at yeah, they look exactly the same. So it's it's there are a lot of um metaphor examples, parables that Star Trek deals in. And that's one of my favorite ones. Uh, Let that be your last battlefield. Also, that's a dope title for, well, that's another thing. Like some of the greatest science fiction writers of all time hooked up with Gene Roddenberry. I'll remember them as we move on. It's like, some of them aren't coming to mind right now, but I know like some of the greatest science fiction writers contributed to the original series. I think we mentioned like a couple of weeks ago that they are coming again with a new Star Trek series and it will be on the original network, uh, CBS, the original Star Trek network. We don't know what it's going to be like. We don't know what they're going to do. I have to be honest, when I look at the current crop of stuff coming out of CBS, I'm not that encouraged. I would be more encouraged (laughs) if it was maybe, you know, coming through a cable channel, you know, something a little more gritty, a little more not necessarily R-rated, but just a little less, you know, mainstreamy. That's a really good point because if you're on CBS and you're in a primetime audience, you're not going to be able to maybe go there as much, which is to I mean, you have to admit though, this is where Star Trek started. So, I mean, there is that. Um so, you know, we can be ho- hopeful that that will yield something interesting. But let's um before we get too deep into you know what Star Trek means, well, well, let's talk about some of the 50th anniversary things that have come about. Uh, we've been inundated with all this Star Wars talk for the last couple of years, and we have a new Star Trek film coming like next month, and there's just so little hype for this film compared to what we had for Star Wars. 
And especially given the fact that this is the 50th anniversary of the franchise, it's a little odd. So that's another, you know. That is really weird now that you mention it. Because it is the 50th anniversary. It's a huge thing to have a 50th yeah. anniversary. And then the movie's coming out this summer. And we're st- we're all still talking about, like, Rogue One. Exactly. So this is, a, this, this is the love letter pod to the Star Trek community. So let's talk about some of the things um, that have come about because of the 50th anniversary. Some of the, some of the good and some of the bad. What, I think you said there are some sort of figures. Mattel is making Star Trek Barbie dolls. Well, I wouldn't call them Barbie dolls, but they're making Star Trek dolls. And they're going to come in three flavors. Captain Kirk, Spock, and Uhura for a... I don't know if this is a good price or not, but $34.95 for a Barbie doll of hmm. Star Trek characters. I don't know about that one. And hmm. actually, you know, what What strikes me as really interesting about Mattel, Mattel of all companies coming out with Star Trek Barbie dolls, is it's kind of an indication of how mainstream it's become. I can't even imagine having Barbie dolls of Star Trek characters. But I mean, are you? Do you think this is geared toward collectors or toward actual kids who play with Barbie dolls? I mean, I think it's a little bit of both because you have Captain Kirk and Spock for the collectors, and I, you know, just how some geek collectors go. It doesn't matter what it is; they just need to have it. But I think. The fact that they're making Uhura one of them is maybe trying to get at this uh, geek girl demographic and, like, get them young. Because, you know, you have Rey with Star Wars now, and they're just, like, they had that whole thing where there was a shortage of Rey toys, and all the girls, little girls were going bananas over it. So I think maybe in this sense they're like, well, you know, girls do like sci-fi little girls could potentially be a huge market. So now you have an Uhura doll. So And then you, I know we were talking about there's some sort of Star Trek virtual reality game. Yep. So uh, Ubisoft and uh, Red Storm Entertainment have developed this Star Trek VR game called Bridge Crew. And what you can do is it's a four-player game. It's a cooperative VR game, which is kind of cool. So it's kind of meant to be played with people. And you can either play as a captain, a tactical, engineering, or helm officer on a fictional starship called Aegis. And it's going to be set in Abrams' Star Trek universe. And I think from what I read, the objective of the game is to find a new homeworld for the Vulcans, who in the 2009 film had their homeworld obliterated. Spoiler alert for that film. (laughs) No, no, no. I mean, no, that's... uh... I didn't know yeah, that. Wow. So so the whole thing is based on finding a home world for Vulcans. And this is, again, the J.J. Abrams version of Star Trek, from my understanding, is supposed to be like an alternate universe version yeah. of Star Trek. It was kind of like a reset so that they could get people who've never even experienced the, the Star Trek world to kind of get in. Like, you know, when comics, they, they do like a reboot and a reset. Like DC just did a, a reboot uh, called Rebirth so that... Every hero has a. They're starting back at issue one, so that a whole new audience. Yeah, I'm not a fan of those. I, I mean, are you into that? I mean, can you can you convince me that that's good? I, I feel like that dilutes the kind of original source material. I think if you're a, a longtime fan, 100, percent that's how you feel. But if you're just trying to get into it for the first time, like when I tried to get into Marvel comics for a bit, I was just like, I don't know where to start. I am super overwhelmed. I don't know where to to just like come in, and then how do I find the back issues of this and that. 
So I understand a little bit and it kind of makes sense to me. But, you know, once you get into it, then you're just like, oh, man, this is lame. And I have to restart all from like scratch square one all over again. But yeah. But back to the VR game. Uh, what was cool is that they had Carl Urban uh, who plays Bones in the Abrams reboot, uh, Jerry Ryan and LeVar Burton. Jerry Ryan, Seven of Nine, the former yeah. Borg, hottest Borg ever. Sorry. <laughs> and LeVar Burton of uh, Reading Rainbow's name. It was uh, Jordy LaForge. So they were kind of, and it is kind of cool because in, in the interview, uh, uh, LeVar Burton was just like, oh man, I can play a lady in the game. And he was- <laughs> is, he, is he trying to tell us something? What's going on? <laughs> Well, he went on. He went on to say that it was cool that you could just choose a different avatar when you're playing in the virtual reality space because it kind of ladders up to the Star Trek ethos and like mission statement, I guess you would say, of promoting diversity and dreaming of the future in another way. So, using the VR, you could theoretically just kind of experience the world through a different gender or a different character base basis. I By guess. the way, bring, thinking of uh, Jordy LaForge. Um, for those who don't know, he was, uh, the ship's engineer on Star Trek, the next generation. And he had a visor. He was blind and, but he had a visor that allowed him to see. I think there was infrared vi vision mode. He has all these different settings on the visor, uh, that allow him like a, there have been a couple of Star Trek episodes that show you like how he sees the world. And they're kind of like, uh, almost like Predator, like where the Predator, mm. if you're familiar with the Predator films, like the Predator has all these different vision modes that aren't just normal human sight. It's like heat, uh, you know, I can't remember, uh, sonar, maybe just different modes, at least for the Predator. And with, uh, Jordy, that's how he could see. And I just, I don't know what it was always. Uh, interesting to me about that was it was like yet another example of how Star Trek is kind of like, you know, showing us what could be, you know, technology that isn't just magical. This is like things that could be in the future. Yeah, no, I think that's actually a great point that Jordy had uh, that visor on because like if you think about this game and how they're playing it, you're going to be putting on a VR headset. So like the game, uh, I think the actors used Oculus Rift headsets, but the, the game will be available this fall for Rift, HTC Vive, and PlayStation VR. And so are you a VR lover? Are you into VR? I am not a hater. I like. I think there's some ethical reservations I have towards ethical VR. reservations. <laughs> like, let's get well, like, one. What is this? Like, you know, because VR has a lot of power, so you could do things like put someone in a situation in a game that's really terrifying and mess them up. Like, I think there's that potential, but overall, I'm pretty positive on VR. I think it's I, I cool. smell like, an episode in the future where we go go deep on this. This sounds interesting. I can tell you have some interesting ideas on this. Um, yeah, because <laughs> I, I do a lot of reporting and research on VR. I think they are super cool. I'm super excited to for it to be a little more like not that it's not accessible now but more accessible because, you know, an Oculus Rift headset is going to set you back a pretty penny. And Google Cardboard, you know, that's just more of like a 360 old school stereoscope, but updated type VR experience. I I love using Google Cardboard because, um, you know, I have, I have a friend who has one and lets me borrow it. And I really enjoy when things like, uh, I think a couple of months ago, the New York Times put out a Carol trailer 
uh, and it was like 360 view. You could look around and all these things. And, you know, lots of, lots of, uh, media outlets and like film companies, they're putting out these 360 videos that you can explore. And that's a whole lot of fun. And Google cardboard is pretty cheap. Uh, so it's accessible in that way. But like, I haven't gotten a chance to try out, uh, HTC Vive, uh, or, uh, Rift yet because I have, you know, let me tell you, there's a company called, um, Sketchfab, uh, based here in Manhattan. And they have a virtual reality app that they just launched about two, about two weeks ago. And one of the experiences puts you on the surface of Mars and they allowed me to come to their office and use the HTC Vive. And what's unique about the Vive versus the Oculus Rift is that you can set up the Vive in a room and it will actually track your movements within the room. So whereas with the Oculus Rift, it's basically like, Maybe it's not a souped up uh, Google Glass. I'm sorry, Google Glass. It's not a souped up Google Cardboard. It's much more than that. But you're not really being tracked, you know, in in space in the same way as you are with the HTC Vive. With the HTC Vive, you you know, you your position in the real world it, it corresponds to your virtual reality position, and so. I was at their office and I put on the HTC Vive and I walked on the surface of Mars. And I have to tell you, this was a very stripped down, bare bones office, no frills, uh, you know, just it's a system that anyone can buy at this point. Vic, I felt like I was on the surface of Mars. If you had, if they had, you know, wind machines and smell, you know, like some sort of fragrance machine, and, you know, some sort of just like some sort of maybe even like a haptic vest or something to kind of make me feel it would have been crazy because I, I left that office. I left that meeting feeling like I had kind of sort of been on the surface of Mars. So I'm really excited you know, for all this. I am super excited by the possibilities of VR, but I think it's a double edged sword for humanity. For humanity? <laughs> <What's>, yeah. <laughs> like, I'm just uh, like. Maybe I've been reading way too much dystopian stuff recently, but I can just imagine us all like, do you remember Inception where they go into this basement in some like Middle Eastern country, I think, or like a hot tropical country. And there's just bunches of people and they've got like the, the, the IVs in their arm so that they can go into the dream world all the time. I just, I just think there, there's a point where we might lose our tenuous grasp on reality for the virtual reality world and not understand where we are anymore like it would be really hard to unplug and if that's that's the case that's kind of scary but the potential of vr is so great and so potentially positive for humanity like i don't know i'm so excited about it but i'm also somewhat terrified well, funny you mention that vic there's a star trek episode that speaks directly to that um, of course there is. Of course there's, a, there's a character named Reginald, uh, I think it's Reginald Barclay. I know his, his name is Barclay. And he had a holodeck addiction. The holodeck in Star Trek is Star Trek The Next Generation is basically imagine, like if you're not familiar with the Star Trek series, imagine VR where you don't need goggles. You're in an entire room. Uh, your body is in an entire room. And light and force fields and various effects basically deliver the sensation of being on another planet, swimming, uh, floating in space, uh, fighting a creature, 
um, swimming, uh, having sex, uh, playing racquetball. All these things are possible in the holodeck. Um, and my understanding is the technology in the world of Star Trek is based on force fields and gravity fields and that kind of thing. And yeah, one episode has uh, uh, Barclay addicted and he actually has to go through a program. He has to go through therapy to wean him mm. off of his addiction. Uh, and then I think actually there's another episode where, um, uh, Jordy LaForge and, you know, talking about abuse, he finds out about a, a scientist. I think she's back on earth. And what he does is he downloads all her data, downloads, you know, uh, all of her visual imagery, you know, all her statistics, like what she looks like, how much she weighs, yada, yada. And he basically creates a holodeck version of her. Yeah, oh it's God. basically a clone of her on the holodeck. And he starts – and his original reason for doing this is to figure out some sort of – he's trying to figure out some science problem, you know, some technology mm -hmm. science problem. And it actually works. You know, she helps him and, you know, kind of progresses, you know, helps him, you know, move forward with his problem. But he falls in love. He okay. falls in love with this hologram. And so when the real scientist, the human real world scientist actually visits the Enterprise, he is incredibly inappropriate with her because he has this feeling as though they already know each other, that they've been working with each other for months and that they have this kind of mutual affection. And uh, when she finds out, I think she finds out by accident that he created this holodeck clone of her. She she basically feels violated as as she should. But that's like, yeah, that's my fear for VR. Like, I'm so excited for it. But at the same time, I, I know we as a species are full of people who who will just take. This is why we can't have nice things. <laughs> <laughs> like That's just well, that's, that's the one. Thing yeah, I, I feel like we're getting like not this is kind of away from VR technology, but I almost feel like we're almost there on a social level because and tell me if this hasn't happened to you. I'd be shocked if you tell mm -hmm. me this hasn't happened to you. I've had a number of people over the last 10 years where I followed them on social media I followed their photo feeds, their Twitter feeds, their Facebook mm -hmm. or whatever feeds. And when I meet them in person, I'm incredibly over familiar with them. Like I, I, I treat them like yes. we're buddies and I almost treat them like I've had at least two episodes where I, I was a little off put. Because I was kind of like, why don't you, why aren't you as warm and fuzzy with me as I am with you? Don't we know each other? And you have to take a step back and think, wait a minute, you, this, this person doesn't know me. I know them from their social well, media. Well, I think I know them from their social media presence. I've had that when I've met uh, minor celebrities, uh, just like in passing or something where it's just like, oh, right. Don't creep them out. Don't creep them out that the fact that you know everything about them because you read their Wikipedia you know where they went to elementary school, all the music that they've done there. You've seen like 10,000 different things of them. They don't know shit about you. Well, I mean, but that's I mean, that's almost different because that that's happened, I think, almost forever yeah. with celebrities. I'm just talking about a person like who isn't necessarily famous. I mean, just like just a regular person who you followed for years, who's not a famous star or anything like that. And you just meet him in person and you're smiling at them like an idiot. Like, you know, hey. <laughs> oh, it's like, oh, no, that happened to me recently with a friend. Uh, not not a close friend, more like of acquaintance. I hadn't seen them in a while. And they were just talking about an anecdote or like a story that they, they had 
you know, happened had happened to them recently, and I was like, oh yeah, I know about that. I saw it on your Facebook, and I was like, oh, that's yeah, creepy. Yeah. But but like I know that, and that's already. the thing. It's like, but how yeah. creepy is it when you share everything? You know. So I mean, this this whole scenario with uh, Jordy LaForge downloading someone's data, image, uh, voice patterns, uh, personality, and then make turning it into a holographic clone. That's why Star Trek is awesome because. I think it only takes a very short leap of imagination to realize based on what's happening with VR right now, that that's going to be possible. That's not outlandish. That's, that's on the way. Uh, so that is, so what's the name of that again? The VR Star Trek VR. It is called bridge crew. Okay. And that's coming out. Do we know when that's coming out? They're just saying that it's coming out this, this fall. fall. So. Okay. Uh, hopefully in time for the official September 8th anniversary. Yeah. And so next, there's also a big museum, uh, interactive museum exhibit coming to New York on July 9th. Uh, it's coming to the Intrepid Museum, and it's the Starfleet Academy Experience. And it's at the Intrepid Museum for tourists, for people who live in New York like us and for tourists alike. The Intrepid, you'll know, is that gigantic ship on the west side of uh, of Manhattan, and it allows you to tour kind of military uh, gear and, and you know, structures or whatever. And so this is kind of like an appropriate place, I think, to put a, a Starfleet Academy interactive experience. Um, so I, I dug a little bit in, into it, and my understanding is there's going to be voice-activated displays where you can kind of talk to a Klingon and, you know, maybe have some, you know, back and forth, just voice activated back and forth. I don't know if Klingon will be required, like the Klingon language. I think you'll be able to speak English, but uh, maybe the thing will try to teach you some Klingon. They will also have a leap motion sensor uh, devices. The leap motion came out, I believe it's been about four or five years now. It's basically a gesture interface. It allows you to control a computer's interface by waving your hands. Like, uh, yeah, like an orchestra director. If you remember the original Star Trek, um, they, a lot of their interfaces were like panels. At least, well, mm -hmm. see, I'm, I'm getting fuzzy now because I, I remember the original, uh, you'd see Ahura at the control deck and she, you know, lifts some levers or whatever. And same thing with Spock. I think, I think it was maybe the next generation where some of the panels seemed like they were touch panels and, and some of them seemed to mm -hmm. be gesture control panels. So that may be what they're trying to replicate. I'm not really sure, but, uh, they're promising a bunch of interactive, uh, displays. Uh, it's going to, they're calling it, the nickname for it is the Tech Trek Experience and it spans 12,000 square feet. Yeah. They're actually going to give you a tour. Uh, you know, through the history of Star Trek, like the Star Trek universe. Um, they're promising, uh, table projections, holograms. I did see a video where they kind of, uh, replicate, uh, in a life-size way, they replicate what it looks like when someone goes through the transporter room, when they like material, like materialize, mm -hmm. dematerialize. So that's pretty cool. I do know I've seen that they have like a life-size uh, representation of the Star Trek Next Generation bridge that you can walk on and kind of like, you know, look around and, you know, kind of sit in the captain's chair and say engage and, you know, feel like, you know, you're a French captain in the 24th century. Yes, I mean, that's I mean, that's coming July 9th. 
Any interest? Do you think you might go? I definitely would love to go. Um, and especially since I think one of the aspects is that you get like a student orientation and you do training in like all the different fields like language, medicine, command, et cetera, et cetera. And then you get to like receive a specialty. I think I read that on the website and I don't know, but I love maybe it's because I grew up with Harry Potter. I love trying to figure out which house I get sorted into. So that aspect, like just kind of figuring out what I would be if I was in the Star Trek world is super cool to me. I'm super excited for that. And it reminds me of, and I hate to bring it up again, but it reminds me of this thing that they did in the UK called uh, Star Wars Secret Cinema. What is this? So what they did, and I had a friend who lived in London who went to this and I saw all the pictures and that's how I found out about it. Uh, What they did was they rented out a huge warehouse and they recreated the universe and feel of The Empire Strikes Back. And if you bought a ticket to this particular event, like a week before, they would message you and be like, okay, you have to dress up like this. You're a member of, you, you would take a test and you would like dress up as a member of a certain faction, either Jedi or like mercenary or something like that. And you would go in and they would give you operatives and directives and you could interact with actual actors dressed up as characters from the Star Wars uh, movie. So like my friend, for example, was a part of the mercenary faction and she had to go find certain items and talk to Han Solo, barter with him, try and find out secret passageways into this gigantic warehouse. And at the end of it, they filmed, uh, not filmed, but they screened The Empire Strikes Back, and it, they even had, like, an X-Wing in there, like a life-size X-Wing and all that sort of stuff. So, in a way, the interactive um, aspect of this exhibit reminds me of that. And because they never brought the Star Wars secret cinema to, to the U.S., I guess I, I will happily, happily go to the Star Trek Intrepid. And, and that is running until October 31st, Halloween. Um, another, and, and I will definitely go. I'm going, I'm going to go and I'm sure there's going to be some interesting. One thing I saw that I couldn't figure out what, like the purpose, like they have like these little wristbands and I want to say they were mm-hmm. smart watches, but I don't know, but they had like these little white uh, looked like a it looked like a an Apple Watch with the Starfleet symbol on the top of what would be the watch face. So I don't know if that's like a sensor to track you as you go throughout the exhibit. Um, I don't know what that is, but uh, you know, just for the potential unique one time only swag, Star Trek swag, I will take a visit and and see what it's all about. Um, another event that will be here in New York, uh, in September, right before the anniversary, uh, at the Javits Center is something called Star Trek Mission New York. And I don't have a ton of, uh, details on it, but it's described as the ultimate destination for fans filled with interactive exhibits, exclusive merchandise, celebrity guests, uh, panels, screenings, and more. And again, that's September 2nd, uh, running until September 4th. Uh, Mission New York. The Javits Center is on the west side of uh, Manhattan, I think around 36th Street and 10th Avenue. Uh, pretty easy to get to. Um, and, and there are a bunch of um, like there are a bunch of Star Trek music events. There's a, a Star Trek art exhibition going on in San Diego. There's like a Comic Con thing happening in July with Star Trek, you know, for the anniversary. Uh, there's something in Las Vegas. Like a, a Star Trek 50th anniversary. There's a cruise? Yeah, well, that's next year. So, you know, that, that's yeah, not, that's you know, 
I'm just for this year, for this anniversary, that this is the stuff that you can get to now and celebrate in true anniversary fashion. And then, of course, there's the new film, uh, Star Trek Beyond, which is coming out July 22nd. Did, have you checked out the trailers? Do you have any interest? Like what? I've checked out the trailers. I've checked, I'm definitely going to see it. I enjoyed Wrath of Khan, even though um, some Ra- people Wrath of Khan? I enjoyed it. Not, not Wrath of Khan, <laughs> like, sorry. <laughs> oh, my God. I just, because, you know, Benedict Oh, right. Okay, Khan, gotcha, gotcha, so gotcha. I called it Wrath gotcha, of Khan. Gotcha, gotcha, gotcha. Okay. <laughs> biggest, bra- biggest brain fart. Uh, yeah, I enjoyed the last film, uh, and I enjoyed the one before that, too. So, definitely. I think the last one was called Star Trek Into Darkness, right? Yes, it was With, Into Darkness. Um, I just, yeah, Khan. Cumberbatch as Khan. There was a lot of controversy about that because, you know, some people were wondering, mm. is this, are we once again race bending? Because uh, Khan, my understanding was like uh, kind of like Asian or uh, either Asian or Middle Eastern. I can't remember, but he definitely wasn't like a, you know, British looking chap in the original. Uh, the original was played by uh, Ricardo Montalban and he was very macho and very he kind of had this swarthy kind of Mediterranean could be any number of races. But in the original Star Trek, he kind of represented this master or supposed, you know, would be master race because they were somehow genetically enhanced and uh, they were part of this war on Earth between genetically enhanced humans and non enhanced humans. And that's kind of why they had to be sent off into space. And so when they showed Cumberbatch as, you know, the new con, it was kind of like, eh. You know, he, he didn't really look, he didn't look well, superhuman. He didn't look, uh, <laughs> any kind of, you know, there wasn't a, an ethnic kind of bent to him. So I, I think some people, but I guess again, that the way they explain all that stuff away is alternate universe Trek, you know? Yeah. Well, he's a great actor and, you know, I felt the intensity when he did the scenes, uh, but, you know, it just seems like race bending controversy follows Benedict Cumberbatch everywhere. So, yeah. <laughs> uh, yeah, that's, but, a, that's a reference to uh, Doctor Strange, which we will talk about at some point, I guess, you know. At some point, at some point. But um, I, I'm actually really looking forward to the newest uh, installation because not only is Justin Lin directing, Simon Pegg, who also plays Scotty, wrote the screenplay. So I think that should be really interesting, especially since um, Peg is a gigantic Trekkie. So it'd be kind of cool to see how he takes. He now, takes it. I mean, I'm I'm a fan of his acting. Do you know if he wrote any of the films that he's known for, like the the, the British? I I mean, don't quote me on it, but I'm pretty sure he did do the writing for Shaun of the Dead and Hot Fuzz and those. I'm okay, so if that's sure. true, then I'm excited because I love those films. So that if that's true, then that would be great. Yeah, I saw the trailer. I, you know, I, I think I made this comment either in writing or to a friend, but you know, Idris Elba. If you're gonna get Idris Elba in your film, this 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 hunky hunky guy who many women and men like, why would you hide him under layers of alien makeup? I, I don't get it. So, I mean, initially when they said, "Oh, Idris Elba is gonna be in the film." They showed him uh, actually on the deck or on the bridge of the Enterprise, and he's standing there looking like human Idris Elba with the rest of the cast standing behind him. And I think the thought was, oh, well, okay, wow, cool. Elba's going to like, you know, bring in some, you know, strong acting in this film. And then you see the trailer and it's basically an, an alien that anybody could be. I mean, he's, I, I you can't, oh. rec- it's, it's not like he has like light makeup and you're like, oh, no. That's Elba. He just has like a feather on his eyebrow or something. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So, you know, now that you mention it, like 
I had heard that he was in the film, but when I watched the trailer, I was like, oh, I guess they it's like know. it's like <laughs> you know Elba. And now that I've Googled it, I was like, ah, that's such a waste of Idris Elba's beautiful. I mean, film. you cast. Let's say you cast Brad Pitt. I'm just guessing someone that people find attractive or whatever. You cast Brad Pitt and then you put him in a fat suit, you know, and with, with a giant wig or something, you know, like, you know, okay, well, anyone could have played that. Why, why, why Brad Pitt? So I guess, I don't know, maybe Idris is, you know, leaning into the role and he doesn't care about that, but I'm sure some women and, and others will be, uh, disappointed by not seeing the, the hunky man meat of, uh, I am disappointed of not seeing the hunky man meet of Stacker Pentecost. Stack, wait, who's Stacker Pentecost? Yeah. That's the name of his character in Pacific Rim. It's just the coolest. I was like, wait, I, th- I thought I was like, are you miss saying Stringer Bell, Stacker? No, but that's no, an no, interesting. No, that's like, did they do that on purpose? Because that sounds like Stringer Bell. I don't, I don't know if they did it on purpose. I think, yeah, I, I'm disappointed because I love. The no, he's the man. He's the man, and I like Luther. His uh, his UK series where he's a grizzled yeah. detective. With uh, moral issues on the streets of London, you know, and he and he gets to like speak yeah. in his natural accent. He doesn't uh, have to pretend to be an authentic uh, New York guy. Oh, um, and just like this randomly popped into my head. What I'm really hoping from Justin Lin is to dial down on the lens flare in this. Yeah, episode. yeah, come on, J.J. Abrams, and easy. That easy. was that was my biggest complaint of J.J. Uh, yeah. Abrams at the helm of the the Star Trek Enterprise. Wouldn't it be um, ironic if I don't know fifty, a hundred years in the future, and let's say space tourism becomes the norm, and we find out lens flare is actually incredibly common? <laughs> like, what if you know? I wouldn't mean, it be ironic, like J.J. Yeah. Abrams would just be sitting there going, yeah, see? Y'all yeah, didn't know. He'd, he'd be sitting there going, like, I told you guys. I told you. Anyway, so that uh, that's coming July 22nd. Uh, kind of looking forward to that. Honestly, not super excited about it because, I don't know, maybe I'm overthinking it. I really just think that the producer, J.J. Abrams, is super focused on Star Wars. So I'm not hopeful. You know, one thing I will say about the J.J. Abrams like version of Star Trek is that I feel like it loses a little bit of the the cerebral nature that we talked about earlier. It feels a lot more like just a typical action film, and that just might be my reading of it. Like Into Darkness was nonstop. I just one hundred percent. No, one hundred percent. It was like action sequence, and I mean they're great action sequences, but you know, because we're when you talk about Khan and his whole like dilemma, that's really some interesting meat that you could get into into a story. But that film, as enjoyable as it was for, like, a popcorn-crunching blockbuster, it was just, like, action, 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 action. <gasps> Breathe for a two-minute dialogue. Action, 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 boom. Credits. Right. And, and I just, I don't know. That's my one complaint about the series, and I feel like maybe the, the third movie might be a little bit more of that. I'm hoping it's not. Yeah, so, yeah, I, I agree. That he um, I like uh, his style. I like a lot of his films. But Star Trek, the, the tradition of Star Trek, really is about morality, you know, tales of hard choices. And, and they do it in a way where they weave in the action, they weave in the science and the technology, but it's always wrapped around a moral issue. And I, I really feel like that's, um, you know, above all, that's where JJ Abrams, like his version of the Star Trek universe stumbles. So, I mean, let's use that to kind of talk about Star Trek as it relates to the real world. I mean, this, when I think of Star Trek, I think of basically this vision of, as we've, 
mentioned earlier, it's rooted in this notion of real science and technology. There are science officers, there are medical officers, there are people from different countries. Uh, when they go to a new planet, they have this thing called um, the prime directive. And it's this, you know, just just meeting new races. I, I mean, this is all well thought out. The the whole notion of meeting new races, you know, just like you would maybe go to, you know, when they discover, I think they just supposedly discovered yet another undiscovered tribe in the Amazon. You know, how do you treat this new tribe, this, this new life form that is intelligent? Like, how do you treat them? Do you just give them a phaser and, a, and an iPad and, and say, you know, <laughs> order up your... uh you know, you're seamless and, and, and talk to me next week. Or do you kind of like let them develop on their own and, and help in whatever way possible? And that concept comes up in Star Trek uh, with this thing called the Prime Directive. So, so when I look at Star Wars, I think of this kind of it's utopian in that there's another thing. If you notice on Earth, um, basically no one like I've never delved into exactly what the economics of uh, Star Trek Earth are, but it appears that everyone has a basic income. It, it seems like everyone is afforded a basic income, a place to live. Uh, everyone has replicator food, so no one goes hungry. Uh, everyone can replicate their clothes, so everyone can look, you know, they can have the newest, uh, you know, curry twos, clothes, you know, food, whatever. Yeah, you, you don't have to basically be an underclass. You know, it kind of like it's like a classist society. So how how realistic do you think that world is? Like the way they set up the politics um, and the and the, the social structure? That world, I think, could come to pass if humanity could just get its crap together and just dive in on, like, the notion of a good, like, a greater good. But the way things are now, and maybe this is just covered, colored by the... Uh, the current election cycle, I don't think that'll ever happen. I just feel humans, we're in a rat race and we can't necessarily put the good of everyone before the good of the individual. So I'm not sure that'll just come come about. But as you say, with stuff with like the prime directive, uh, you know, they're already starting. I think I read somewhere online, they're already starting to think about what dem Martian democracy and Martian constitution will look like once we've actually gotten there and how we'll deal with a government on a different planet. So in that sense, I feel when we eventually start building starships and exploring and colonizing space, I think they've got, I think they've got how we would approach it downright. So long as democracy exists and we're not like dictators sending like empire esque fleets out into the, into the universe. Yeah. Well, I mean, that's, um, I don't. I don't know. I feel. I, I. You sound a little pessimistic. When you say pessimistic, I say keeping my expectations grounded in in reality. I agree with you on at least one level. The thing that I always think about with Star Trek is one world government, because if you mm -hmm. look at how they operate, and see, I'm again, I'm a bad Trekkie because I haven't done my history homework, but. It, my understanding is that Earth has become one, a one world government, but I don't know if that was prompted by contact with other species or other worlds. I get the sense that that's what happened, that once, uh, you know, um, I think Cochrane managed to get warp drive to work and was noticed by 
other species. I think uh, the Vulcans were first to visit in the in the Star Trek universe were first to like make themselves known to Earth. Uh, once that happened, maybe that's the thing that spurred this kind of one world government on Earth. So, I mean, that that's kind of the biggest thing. Whenever I think of Star Trek is one world government. Is it possible? And I always think of the United Nations. You know, how does that work? The Olympics. Like, there's really only one thing that we do that's productive as an international body. Because the only other thing we do as an international body that does anything in a, in a big way is war. You know, but and on a productive yeah. level the United Nations seems to be like the closest thing we have to a federation or to a one world government. And, you know, I've known a bunch of people who work for the UN. It does nothing just from just, you know, from personal experience, I used to do some uh, press reporting at the UN. They just, there's a whole lot of nothing. Do you, do you have clearance to reveal this on the pod? Yes. Yes, I do. So if you disappear next week, it has nothing to do with that. Gotcha. No, I just, I just had a press badge and I went to a couple of uh, like uh, press conferences there. It's not, it's super not serious. I just went for a couple of events. And from what I can tell you about those events, there is a whole lot of nothing that goes on there. It is just a lot of, oh, your excellency, thank you for nominating me to be the chair of this useless committee. Man, uh, wait, wait, come on. You're just taking down the UN. I mean, wait, like, hold on, hold on. Let's pump your brakes for a second. Maybe you didn't get a lot out of it there as a reporter, but I mean, are you, I mean, are you really prepared to say the UN is just absolutely meaningless? No, no I'm not. I'm not. Um, I think they do a lot of great charity work and a lot of great, um, like, global health initiatives and that sort of stuff. On that front, I think the UN does a lot of really important work. What I'm talking about is the Security Council and countries coming together and not having their own agendas and forming blocks and working together for what would be great for the whole entire world. Because you have a lot of initiatives that if we all, like I think this is is just a theme at the UN where it's like if we could all just get together and agree that childhood hunger should end, or, you know, we should all disarm our nukes. These are all things that every country theoretically, supposedly agrees on is a good thing. But when you get to the heart of it, and you can see a lot of it with, like, the COP global warming and environmental meetings that they go to, there's just agendas left and right. And everyone agrees that this is a thing that we need to get to. But then you'll have countries who are like, so then let's set a hard goal. And you'll have other countries, cough, cough, the U.S., who's like, yeah. But that would be, like, super inconvenient for us, so let's just soften the language and make it really vague and agree that we'll get to it in, like, 20 years. How's that? And that's just, like, the feel that I I feel very strongly that a one-world government would just be like that because, you know, too many cooks in the kitchen. So you so you just don't think it's even viable, a one-world government? I, unless we have aliens come. Damn it. You, you took you took my next, that was my follow-up. That's exactly <laughs> what I was going to say. I, so We're on the same. Right. The same there you go. I, my, the thing I always pose to friends when we're talking about issues of religion, race, just separation of tribes on this planet is what, you know, what do we do if an outside force comes that we have any chance of dealing with? You know, let's just assume they're not so advanced that we have just zero chance. We have some chance, but the only chance we have is to work together. Uh, then what, you know, do, do you care that this person, you know, has a different shaped nose and is like, several shades, different color, and then doesn't speak a language that you've ever heard in your life. 
but you know this other person is human and shares the same planet. At that point, does any does anything else matter other than the fact that you're both human and you share this planet? I I, I would think no. But if it but if it takes if, I mean if if it takes us to get to that point, probably too late, right? Probably, definitely, probably too late. But um, do you remember that movie uh, District Nine? Yes. I think that's what would happen. We would just stop with the racism and become speciesist or speciesist or however you pronounce it. Like we would just basically go humans. Yeah. We got aliens to, to, to worry about. So let's stop being racist and homophobic and awful to each other. And let's just be awful to them. Right. The, the new upper class is the human class. Yes. But the one world government, um, again, the initial, uh, series in the 60s was set in the 23rd century and the next generation is the 24th century so let's just deal with the 23rd century the nearest term possibility so that would mean that we have 200 years about or thereabouts to get to a one world government um we are, we currently have trump putin that no, not thatcher what am i talking about um merkel who's the guy in in london uh everybody oh, hates him right now uh, cameron cameron so it's not looking great for a one world government. We need some aliens to come and then we need to figure out, because uh, as you mentioned, you know, replicator food, replicator clothes. Uh, we need to solve Maslow's hierarchy of needs. Solve it? Well, just erase the need for survival, hmm. basically. But I mean, but see, there's the problem, though, because it's like, see, what I love about Captain Kirk, man, I, I, I've, I'll try to find some audio that represents what I'm trying to say right here. Well, that's the second time man's been thrown out of paradise. No, no, boss. This time we walked out on our own. Maybe we weren't meant for paradise. Maybe we were meant to fight our way through, struggle, claw our way up, scratch for every inch of the way. Maybe we can't stroll to the music of the lute. We must march to the sound of drums. Poetry, Captain. I'm in command. I could order this. But I'm not. Because Dr. McCoy is right in pointing out the enormous danger potential in any contact with life and intelligence as fantastically advanced as this. But I must point out that the possibilities, the potential for knowledge and advancement is equally great. Risk is our business. That's what the starship is all about. That's why we're aboard her. You know, Kirk, what was great, great about him is he would always meet some alien species. And the alien species might have trouble understanding the nature of humanity. And Kirk would do this great job of talking about, you know, we're savages and we're rough around the edges and we don't always get it right, but that's part of the magic of humanity. And this is, a, and, and then the, 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 the music that would, would rush, you know, the Star Trek music would rush and he'd have a twinkle in his eye and you listen to this poetry coming from Kirk's mouth. You're like, yes, humans were savages, but that's our beauty. So, I mean, I, I, I kind of believe I, I'm, 
on that page a little bit, you know? I want to believe. I want someone to say those things and make me believe them. I'm rooting for someone <laughs> to make me believe it. Like, I might sound like the, the Spockian cynicist or or whatever, but I, I really would love to believe all of that The stuff. Spockian cynicist. I think you have the title of a book of philosophy that you need to write <laughs> post-haste. The Spockian cynicist. I like that. Um, so, yeah, so uh, it's about 200 years from now. Not looking very good. Um, and then just really quick, you know, before we sign off, maybe just a quick touch on the tech. I do know that the transporter uh, beam, you know, transporting mm-hmm. matter from one place to another. Uh, many people have thought that that's impossible, but we are now seeing the very early hints that there may be a possibility of transporting matter from one side of the planet to another. Um, I don't have the details in front of me, but I, you know, this is stuff that I, you know, look into regularly. So I, I I promise you listeners, I am not selling you a bill of goods. Hugely like crazy cool, but also somewhat terrifying. So the transporter technology uh, phasers are, well, that's real. Uh, Mm -hmm. I mean, Maybe not in the handgun fa- uh, form just yet, but I do know the Navy uh, just realized like a final usable version of what's known as a rail gun. Um, we do have lasers that can take drones out of the sky now. Uh, granted, all this stuff is prototype early stuff, but I mean, this stuff is real. So a phaser is not out of the question. Um, I think the big one, and, and oh, wait, before I get to that, uh, replicators. Mm-hmm. I think it's amazingly obvious that that's coming when you just look at something as simple as 3D printers. Yep. You know, um, and now that we have begun to be able to manipulate, uh, molecules and, and deal with nanotechnology on a level that allows us to create structures on a nanoscopic level, yeah, it's it. I feel like it's just a matter of time before our replicators or these, you know, 3D printer like devices can replicate food, clothing, you know, working parts. It may take longer to, to, to develop, you know, than maybe we hope. But again, we, we're seeing like the early hints that this is something that may, in fact, be possible. Uh, what I was getting to, though, is I think the big one is warp drive. Uh, this is the thing that. For all intents and purposes, this is what will allow humanity in Star Trek, what allows humanity to move out of what is kind of like a backwater kind of outpost and travel to different worlds and find new resources and broaden our our horizons and, you know, trade with other intelligent species. That would be so cool if we could do that. But it's also... I think my theme for this episode is like, I am so on board and I think all of these things are super cool, but I'm also somewhat terrified of all these technologies that we're kind of hurtling towards because I don't know if we are smart enough to use them in a smart way or like in a way that is mostly good because I think technology, I mean, you just have to look at our smartphones to see that they bring so much good, but also they raise a lot of bad things. Like we have the smartphone, we're more connected than ever. You know, we can talk to people better than we could ever have done, keep in contact better than we ever have in the past. But then we just become so narcissistic with our smartphones and like the selfie generation. And, you know, you know, what they say about millennials, they say, I can't get out of bed. And all I do is stare at my smartphone all day and communication is breaking down. So warp drive, 
I, oh God, I want to, I want to go on a warp drive vacation so bad, but at the same time, I'm just a little, it's like jumping blind into a place that you have no idea because it's all uncharted. Okay. I'm just going to read something from sciencealert.com. Astrophysicist Geraint Lewis from the University of Sydney gave a talk explaining that, in theory at least, super-fast warp speed travel is possible according to Einstein's theory of relativity. We just need to find the right materials to achieve it. And he says, quote, if and that's that's the writer, but uh, mm-hmm. the scientist says, quote, if you look at the equation that Einstein gave us, it shows you it shows you can bend and warp space so you can travel at any speed you like in the universe. Um, so, I mean, you know, I mean, again, this is stuff that we're looking at. This is not, you know, th- th- again, what's amazing about science fiction is good. The best science fiction is rooted in real possibility. Maybe, you know, not science or tech that is necessarily around, but things that are theoretically uh, maybe not even possible, but uh, worth thinking about. And then you move forward, you know, 20, 30, 40, 50 years. And lo and behold, often you look up and scientists have actually found a way to make, you know, what some writer, some science fiction writer just imagined into a reality. Um, and so that is just our contribution to the Trekiverse, the Star Trek universe, the, uh, the Trekkie creed. Um, the Trectum. This, the Trectum. This is the 50th anniversary of uh, the series. Um, I'm definitely going to check out the new film. Uh, again, I'm not incredibly encouraged, but, you know, the thing that's okay is that I have an entire library uh, of Star Trek material to lean back on, whether it's the original series or Star Trek The Next Generation. I think you said there's like a new Blu-ray version coming out. They are releasing a 50th anniversary Blu-ray bonanza. It's got everything. Just everything is. Now, is this the original series? The the second series? Do you know which? Um, I don't know off the top of my head, but I believe it's the original. It could even just be Star Trek Next Generation. Uh, It's just the 50th anniversary version. It's got everything in it. I just remember looking at it. It's going to cost a butt ton of money. A butt ton? That that's not helpful. I don't. I don't (laughs) buy things in butt tons. They didn't release a price, but I think for the comprehensiveness of what I saw, it can't. It's not going to be cheap. We'll try to find that for you and maybe put the link on the, on our website. Uh, that has been the Mars Magazine podcast for this week, celebrating the fiftieth anniversary of Star Trek. We will see you in the future. Live long and prosper. <laughs> <laughs>